Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Vitalik, how are you doing this morning? It's it's been a good morning. Um, you know, just uh, in the process of uh, writing some an uh, article about uh, where where to use and not use blockchains. Um, what other things have I yeah, been up to? Just you know, a, bu- a bunch of random things. But you know, generally, it's been good and it's been fun. How about you? Doing really well. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Uh, do you mind giving us kind of a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Uh, sure. Uh, so I think people uh, in general mostly know me for crypto stuff. Um, so I uh, joined the Bitcoin ecosystem uh, back in 2011. Uh, so I was still in high school. Um, I heard about Bitcoin a couple of times, once on the internet, once from my dad. And I thought, hey, you know, this is interesting. This uh, seems like an ecosystem that's doing something really cool. And so I started like really jumping in and participating in it. I started off as a writer. Uh, so I co-founded Bitcoin Magazine with uh, this guy named Mihai Alicia from Romania. And I was writing just a bunch of articles on all kinds mm-hmm. of Bitcoin mm-hmm. topics, um, including the technology, the economics, the uh, politics and society related issues. And, uh, you know, culture, just about everything. And a couple of uh, years after that, I went into the crypto space mm-hmm. uh, full-time, started exploring more projects, and eventually Ethereum started. Uh, and mm-hmm. I have been part of the uh, Ethereum project uh, ever since. Uh, so the stuff that I generally do for Ethereum uh, tends to have to do with uh, research. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, coming up with the ways to improve the Ethereum protocol, uh, kind of test, uh, testing out so, uh, some of those approaches, like coordinating with uh, researchers and developers and like, exp- explaining things on uh, those kinds of issues. Though I also have continued to kind of write and like think and do big picture stuff on a bunch of uh, blockchain related issues, I guess. Uh, the thing that's uh, fascinating about blockchains and that I think becomes even more true about uh, systems like Ethereum than uh, it, w- it was about Bitcoin is that blockchains are this uh, environment uh, where you can create um, you know, new organizations, you can create new systems of rules, um, you can create applications that encode ways in which uh, large numbers of people interact with each other. And so there's a lot of, uh, of ideas around things like um, economics and you know, sociology and like thinking through dis- different disciplines about like how would people actually uh, interact and use a particular application? Would some application break? Um, would uh, uh, some application not break in what different circumstances? Um, so I uh, end up uh, thinking about these ideas that are very relevant to things that are happening in Ethereum land, but that also do end up stretching further. That makes makes a ton of sense. Vitalik, I, I'm curious, a lot of people think about you as a crypto person, but I actually think of you kind of as like uh, 
being more interested in governance and political economy. And then, you know, crypto is almost like a way to get there. It's a way to innovate in that space in a way that people have not been able to do that in the in the recent past. Is that a fair assessment or or is, is kind of crypto actually the main thing? No, I, th- I think that's definitely true. Um, I think like, I mean, I'm definitely, you know, not like into the coins for the coins. I'm uh, that, like, to me, blockchains definitely are this kind of way to open up this big uh, space for people to, um, you know, experiment, have uh, enough governance, uh, communication, um, open up the ways that we can coordinate without um, you know, relying on, gov- on uh, governments and co- uh, co- corporations and uh, all of these kinds of things. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely very interested in these kind of broader ends that I've always seen the crypto space as being about trying to accomplish. Interesting. So on that note, you know, our audience is, you know, our audience has, has some degree of knowledge of crypto, but it, it's more of a general audience. We talk here mostly about policy and big ideas and kind of things like that. So, well, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, we invited you on the show when we saw that you had retweeted some of our work. You know, um, I had written this series of articles for Astral Codex 10 on the topic of land policy and Georgism, and I saw you had read it. Um, so I guess we'll just jump right into that. First of all, uh, you've, you've read the series. Um, what did you think of it? I thought it was very interesting. Um, I had been a fan of Georgism for a really long time. I think it was uh, one of the political philosophies that really uh, appealed to me, even uh, back when I was just uh, starting my uh, learnings about what the different political philosophies are. And uh, when I was still a Bitcoin magazine person, um, I uh, was definitely, I guess, surprised about the conclusion of uh, just how much revenue a land value tax might be able to capture. Like, uh, it, uh, as I remember, it was basically coming close to be able to replace like a whole bunch of other taxes. And that's, I think, not the usual take among uh, kind of people um, out there in the world that are vaguely pro-Georgist. I'm right there. You know, like the more usual uh, viewpoint is like, okay, yeah, I mean, I see the rationale for this sort of stuff, but like, um, you know, come on, it's not like land is just such a tiny part of the economy. It's not going to get very far. Um, and again, yeah, reading through that post, it was interesting to see, like, actually, you know, just how big a yeah, part of the economy land is. And, you know, on some level, it does make sense, right? Like, especially given how people are to- like talk about housing prices so much. And when you actually look at, like, the price of a house, I'm um, you know, like, in most places, only a, like a small portion of it is the actual house, right? Like, one way to look at this is, uh, like if you get home insurance and uh, you look at like what is the maximum amount that pay, that they pay out in the case that the uh, you know you get a fire and the house completely breaks, so, like relative to the price of a house, often it's pretty tiny. Uh, and so, and then you know comparing kind of like empty lots to full lots, and you notice that the empty lot is like three quarters in your, of the full lot. And if you're looking at buying a house from the point of view of buying a house, you're like WTF made. Uh, and there's and then um you know even things like there was that study that said like if you let people build um like even to a medium extent in places like san francisco the us's gdp could have been 36 percent higher and like all these different you know things that stack up on top of each other and you realize that like wait it actually yeah you know land is pretty significant and it is big um and uh yeah i i, I thought that was uh just generally a really interesting uh, uh, picture. Cool. Did did I leave anything out? Did you disagree with anything? 
I don't think I disagreed with anything. I mean, I do think I have this uh, kind of module in my mind that says, don't let your mind get changed too much by like any one person's a single opinion. And there's always a chance that like, you know, some unknown unknowns are being left out. Um, but uh, no, I definitely would highly welcome uh, you know, and encourage pe more people kind of researching and uh, double checking all this and trying to figure it out. Um, I think uh, in practice, uh, the uh, biggest uh, obstacles to like actually trying to land value taxify, you know, either, either America or other countries is that, it, like a land value instituting a large land value tax is basically a you know, one-time transfer away from uh, existing landowners um and you know existing landowners are going to get upset by that and in a lot of cases existing landowners are this uh, a fairly powerful political lobby. Um, and, you know, there are these kind of emotionally appealing arguments of like, you know, oh, you know, our, all I have is this home, or you're going to tax away the home. And, you know, in reality, like the, with land value schemes, you can always fix them and say, okay, fine, a third of the revenue goes into a citizen's dividend. That's actually totally enough to be able to afford an affordable home. Um, and the people complaining are actually in the kind of top fifth percentile of richness. But, you know, even still, like it's uh, an emotionally appealing argument and politics works off of that sort of stuff. Um, so it's uh, like, it does feel like those kinds of political issues are probably more likely to be the uh, kind of source of uh, problems almost than even the math itself. Um, and just to kind of dial go back to to a previous topic i think one of the things that interests me about like doing a crypto in particular instead of uh doing um you know getting into politics and the traditional way is that whenever you change you you want to change an existing political system like there's always going to be a lot of status quo pressure you have to change huge numbers of people there's like this really long lead time between developing an idea and any hope of uh, having that idea implemented and when when it does get implemented it's always going to be a clutch uh, whereas uh, you know with a blockchain it's like you create a new system and um, you know you build the new system and it runs and uh, sometimes um, you know the thing breaks as uh, we saw happen with uh, Terra a couple of uh, months ago but uh, sometimes the thing doesn't break um, and eventually we learn uh, over time and I'm hopeful that uh, you know at some point uh, the uh, insights that we get from the crypto space are going to start making a, a bigger and bigger impact in the wider economy and society. So that, that actually brings up a really interesting point that ties back into crypto. Um, I think the general term for this phenomenon um, was coined by this guy called Gordon Tullock. He called it the transitional gains trap. And he used the example of taxi medallions where um, the first generation to get some kind of particular benefit um, makes out like bandits. And then the next generation, um, like, like the, the next generation, like the value of that thing might get like priced in. So like taxis might not be particularly profitable, but removing the medallion system will create overnight winners and losers. So now it's very politically fraught to do it. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I, that's just to name the phenomenon we're both talking about of mm -hmm. any try to like remove some existing system that has this bought in interest. Mm -hmm. So you've just brought up, it's like one of the things that appeals to you about crypto is that it's like, okay, well, instead of having to like deal with all these politicians and stuff, we can create this new ecosystem. How long until that new ecosystem you've created has its own winners and losers baked into the status quo? Like, like Ethereum's trying to move from proof of work to proof of stake right now. Are you dealing with your own 
transitional gains trap? And do you have any insights there? No, that's actually fascinating that you asked the question because I was literally just about to raise that exact point. Um, I think uh, it definitely is an issue. I do think that it has been much less of an issue uh, than um, especially people I've looking on Ethereum from the outside uh, sometimes tend to assume. Like, I think we get more concern trolling about miners being expropriated than, uh, you know, even miners complaining about uh, the, uh, the switch to proof of stake. And I think the big reason why this happened is because proof of stake isn't this like new thing that's being foisted on an ecosystem that never expected it. Proof of stake was uh, part of the discussion in Ethereum since um, I've made that first post on uh, Slasher in January, 2014. And then there was a definite plan to move to proof of stake since at least November, 2014, and maybe a bit earlier, right? So it feels like uh, the, the goal of switching to proof of stake, the goal of um, implementing some scalability stuff like sharding, it was kind of part of Ethereum's living constitution almost from the beginning of the project. Um, so it's this kind of interesting experiment where you have a uh, community with these kind of constitution-like norms that are not just about preserving a particular thing that's already there, but also about you know ex- trying our best to execute on this uh, specific roadmap that everyone was aligned on. Um, and you know there definitely are many people um, who are, do not like that roadmap, and a lot of people went somewhere else. Um, when the DAO hack happened in 2016, I think that actually was a moment where Ethereum was just hit with a very unexpected situation, and it uh, did um, act in a way that ended up violating a lot of people's expectations. And um, a lot of those people you know, who were very unhappy about it rebelled and went over to Ethereum Classic. Uh, but uh, one of the interesting side effects of that is that I think Ethereum Classic also actually managed to att- attract people who were unhappy with Ethereum for other reasons. Um, So a lot of proof of work fans went over to Ethereum Classic. Um, A lot of fans of uh, Ethereum having a less aggressive uh, and much more conservative roadmap and uh, not bothering with sharding went to Ethereum Classic. And so that kind of moment even actually kind of purified Ethereum to some extent and uh, made it more cohesive and uh, more able to execute on its own particular values which is uh, you know, also something that I found interesting. So I guess I definitely think that um, you know, avoiding transitional gains traps is uh, going to be a, a, an important thing for crypto ecosystems uh, going forward as well, especially as they become more mature. But I yeah, also think that you know, crypto is this like, very large design space. And so there are different, uh, both technical tools and social and uh, political tools that you can use to deal with those kinds of issues. And uh, I, mean, I think Ethereum actually has done a, a pretty good job of that. And I think other blockchains can as well. Vitalik, th- that's a great transition there. Um, I want to talk about, you know, kind of your preferences. What constitutes good governance, you know, kind of flows from base values. You mm-hmm. seem very pragmatic and kind of non-ideological, which is an interesting contrast because I went to an early, you know, tw- in the early 2010s, I went to these early Bitcoin meetups and, you know, you'd go out to the parking lot afterwards and people would show you their automatic rifles in the back of the trunk of their car, you know, and all these like really wild things, very libertarian, you know, very committed to these ideological things and unwilling to budge. But you seem much more pragmatic. Um, what are kind of your base values that guide your ideal kind of governance structures? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, 
openness is important. Uh, freedom is important. Um, I think uh, cosmopolitan ethical values are important to me. Um, so, you know, the idea of like not just caring about people that are either part of your country or that are otherwise kind of very close to you, but also thinking about the needs of people who are further away. Um, I think uh, just like, I would, how would I call it? Um, having positive some relations with the outside world is also, I think, uh, something that's uh, definitely important to me. Uh, so I guess it stands in contrast with this kind of approach that tries to kind of like get internal cohesion by emphasizing its like, extreme differences with uh, everything that's uh, outside of itself. Like that, I think, is uh, you know closer to something that a lot of people in, say, the Bitcoin maximalist camp are in favor of. But I think uh, Ethereum has always not really been that. Um, and, you know, I, I think even pragmatism itself is uh, kind of an ideological value, too, like uh, trying to kind of emphasize, like, emphasize them, you know, finding the... Uh, the good in all the different viewpoints and like even if you don't agree with something if you have if you can identify some very cheap way to make people who do um, does, um agree with that viewpoint happy you should just go do it um yeah so i think a combination of all of those so one thing just kind of circling back to some things we had said before you know you'd mentioned freedom is very important to you you'd mentioned that you know you you kind of have a little different viewpoint than the bitcoin maxis um but one thing I've noticed is that crypto culture in general has a very pretty strong anarchist streak. And I'm 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 defining anarchy very, very broadly, mm-hmm. generally as people wanting to route around government in general and not having to deal with the political system, which is something you self say you've bought into. But do you identify with anarchism in general, big capital A or lowercase a, and with the way that it manifests in crypto culture at all to any degree? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think. A lot of ideas from that camp are ideas that I um, align and agree with. Um, I mean, I uh, even this morning made that tweet where I complained about how people uh, keep using the word real name to refer to government names, which is something that I really hate. Um, and uh, there, like, by the way, there's actually, uh, I guess, kind of mainstream for mainstream Western people, it might be a bit confusing to kind of really care because whatever your name is probably your name. But you know, there there are these kind of other groups of people like uh, foreigners, some especially Asians. Some I talk to them a lot, right? You know, names are a more fluid thing. Uh, transgender people, actually, I wasn't even thinking about them, but uh, that was uh, something that came up in the replies. Um, but that, like. In general, that, that's definitely kind of like one small example um, of uh, that. You know, I do think that the the crypto space is about trying to like create alternatives to things like a governance, a governments um, in uh, for for a lot of the kind of fu- functions that people want to do. Well, both governments and uh, cent- uh, centralized corporations. Um, I do think that there are two different ways in which you can kind of be, you know, quote, anti-government. Um, one way is to identify the government and its goals as an enemy um, and set yourself up to try to resist them. But the other way is to try to say, okay, the government is a yeah, medicine that is uh, trying to solve uh, very particular diseases that are very real. But, um, you know, like chemotherapy in the 1960s, it's a medicine that has really bad side effects. Um, and so can we create different uh, medicines that have a word, uh, uh, that don't have those side effects or have side effects that are less bad in some way? Um, so I think in general, like the second um, approach 
in general appeals to me more than the first one. And I feel like in general, like if you try to do the first one without doing any of the second one, like I just worry that just kind of sets you up for conflict with the rest of the world too much. I do think that there are cases where the first one is just, you know, what you're going for. And that's just kind of the way it is in your corner of the world and you have to deal with it. Right. So like, for example, you know, like I personally, you know, do like talks to, um, Russian activists quite a bit recently. Um, and, you know, people that are kind of anti-war trying to kind of push um, Russia into a yeah, healthier direction. Um, and they are, you know, obviously yeah, having a very, uh, a very hard time because of their own government. Uh, and they're like, you know, it just is a, yeah, uh, a fact of life that like they're in an environment where in a lot of cases, like they are trying to kind of protect their um, activities from, um, you know, being interfered with by the local banking system and, um, you know, privacy infringements um, and the government seeing things and so forth. But at the same time, like trying to use that kind of frame as a frame for like, this is the default way that all of society works. Like, I think if everyone has that kind of conflict orientation mindset, then things are, can just easily completely break. Um, right. So my, I guess, yeah, my general approach uh, to, uh, toward the freedom thing is basically to also like focus even more on this question of like, well, you know, what are the things that uh, people are actually looking for? Uh, so it could be protection of certain uh, different kinds. It could be yeah, some kind of kind of filtering and curation function. It could be public goods funding um, and like try to find ways to provide at least a, a little um, a little bit of that um, you know using the uh, crypto tools that we have I mean as I think I, yeah as I've already said you know I am a moderate like I'm not trying to like literally replace the entire government uh, so I definitely admire uh, or align much more with kind of lowercase a and uh, not not really uppercase a but that's in, in general where I'm coming from so this kind of reminds me of to what degree does governance, um, in crypto ultimately depend on real world governance. We have smart contracts, mm -hmm. but we've seen instances where there's disputes and somehow or other, these things get dragged into real world courts mm -hmm. and settled by dumb contracts. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I wonder to what degree this is like related to like the Oracle problem or things like that. So um, to what degree does ultimately the blockchain and smart contracts and any, any, any human agreement you want to put on a blockchain ultimately wind up getting appealed to the real world legal systems. You know, um, I was wondering, like, to what, what sense does the Oracle problem kind of imply that real world government will always have a say in what goes on in crypto land? Mm -hmm. So I do think that there have been a couple of instances of uh, people uh, kind of definitely going to some kind of social recourse in order to solve a yeah, problem that happens in their blockchain, but where that social recourse is still local to that community. And uh, they end up solving the problem without relying on a yeah, government court completely. Um, so one of those examples is the Steam versus Hive situation that I've written about a bunch and I keep coming back to, right? Basically- And to be clear, Steam here is S-T-E-E-M, yes. the blockchain, not the non-blockchain video game store. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so Steam um, is a yeah, social network, a blockchain-based uh, social network. The goal was that, you know, you have a token and uh, you can like pay to vote and uh, people could get paid for making good content and all of these different ideas. Um, so it was originally owned by 
one group of people. But then Justin Sun, this uh, very not reputable crypto character, uh, came in and bought the company. And the company originally held, uh, I think it was 20% of all the Steam tokens. But there was this community uh, expectation that those coins were kind of held in trust and they're supposed to be used for the goal of making the Steam ecosystem better. Uh, but then the Steam, the company, ended up being transferred to Justin Sun. And Justin Sun is this outsider who has completely different values, where, you know, basically, as far as I can tell, Justin Sun's ideological values are just make Justin Sun great again. Uh, so he, uh, this immediately started a bunch of uh, tension, um, and uh, eventually, yeah, Justin um, ended up like basically getting enough uh, kind of proof validators on like no, um, on like voting nodes on the proof of stake network uh, to lock out the um, the uh, people who are opposing him and basically kind of secure full control of, of the esteem chain right so the steam blockchain like it it had this version of proof of stake which is so totally not the same as ethereum right in ethereum like all that the proof of stake validators are doing is they're just keeping the chain going and accepting transactions in steam they also have this power to kind of vote and make pretty much arbitrary governance decisions. Um, so they did, they kind of walked everyone else out and the community was unhappy about this. And so the community made a fork of Steam um, and uh, incidentally, they had to call it Hive. Um, and here, I think the uh, existence of government law and trade uh, actually went against uh, what I thought was uh, the good outcome because uh, Steam, the company had the trademark and so they had to name it something else. Um, and so in some ways they kind of lost half the battle right there, but they uh, created Hive and uh, there was this mass migration to Hive and on the Hive chain, the coins belonging to anyone who has participated in Justin Sun's attack got deleted, right? It's like when you, when you make a new coin, uh, you, you can just kind of make the supply of the coin be whatever you want, right? And, uh, you know, anyone could make a version of Ethereum that's like Ethereum Vitalik is evil edition where they just delete my balance. And uh, if people really decide that I'm evil so much they want that they want to switch to it, then like they've done it, right? Uh, so in... Now, I think Hive has like a roughly comparable uh, valuation to Steam. I think, I, I forget, last time I checked, it was a bit higher, but like sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. But like that's an example of off-chain resolution that is also not legal system based, right? So that happens sometimes. Other times, though, there's definitely cases where the yeah, resolution is legal system based, right? So, like, for example, a lot of the time contracts and projects within the blockchain space get hacked. And sometimes the hackers end up returning the money because, um, in part, um, you know, they're afraid of legal consequences going to them. Or sometimes the hackers offer to kind of voluntarily return 95% in exchange for the remaining 5% of their money getting legalized. And because it's so hard to like actually spend $60 million of, of uh, illegally obtained money from a hack, like that, that actually turns out to be a win-win. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, so, you know, a hack turns into a security bounty. Um, but uh, so there are lots of uh, cases of uh, that kind of legal recourse happening too. Um, I think in general, like my view on this is that if courts and uh, law disappeared and assuming that in such a world, the internet was able to keep functioning, which um, I think is probably not true of the internet today, but probably would be true of an internet that actually was optimized around uh, the world being more dangerous. 
Um, so one partial example of this might be, um, you know, the war in Ukraine and how uh, Elon just brought in all of these uh, Starlink nodes, and they actually have been very effective at uh, kind of keeping all the different parts of uh, Ukraine connected. Like I think even you know kept uh, as of still connected uh, to uh, the world almost up until the very end. Um, so that um, you know, if you imagine in like. Basically, if the internet did exist, um, then you know people would be able to would be able to cooperate. Um, you know, you have cryptographic keys; they would be able to solve things off chain. But at the same time, the number of problems that you have would just kind of be you know one or two levels higher than the uh, number of problems that you have today, um, right? So I think it's uh, not an either or thing. It's like the government exists, uh, whether we like it or not, and courts exist, whether we like them or not. Um, and so there are a lot of uh, cases where you can kind of gain some uh, benefit by appealing to them in some situations. And so people do. Um, and, you know, on net, that's uh, probably reduced the uh, number of ter- the amount of terrible stuff ha- um, happening in the crypto space, which is good. Yeah, two two follow up questions on that, and then I want to want to kick it back more to questions of governance. But I thought it was really interesting that in the in the steam and the hive divorce, it's interesting that you kind of pointed out that one of the things that didn't come over was the trademark, which is something that only exists in the off chain legal world, mm-hmm. and is something that um, I mean it's an off chain asset, right? A trademark, mm-hmm. um, and it's a court that adjudicates that. So it was interesting that they could get everything but that. Um, So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that as well as when you say the word hack, there's different kinds of hacks, right? There's the kind of hack where um, you steal a bunch of passwords and gain unauthorized access. And then there's the kind of hack where you do what the smart contract allows, but is not what anyone actually meant Mm -hmm. and cause all kinds of havoc. And um, there's the whole like code is law question. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on um, the tension between those two subjects. But so sorry. So, what are the two subjects here? The two subjects is is the yeah. I probably should have asked them one at a time. But the first one was um, so in the Steam Hive thing, they were able to do off chain resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing they weren't able to resolve was a legal conflict ultimately over the right. trademark. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, so, is there anything interesting to say about that? Like, is that just the Oracle problem? Is there any way to mm. stuff the trademark rights on chain? Right. I mean, theoretically, there is, right? Like, um, you know, we have ENS, the Ethereum name system. And um, like, I have Vitalik.eth, the uh, name. Um, but, you know, if you manage to hack that particular wallet, then, you know, you could have Vitalik.eth for yourself. And, you know, I could sue you, but, um, you know, you could transfer it to an anon account and I might never be able to find it again. Um, and I might be able to do things like, um, you know, complain to Etherscan and complain to some of the centralized ecosystem providers, and they kind of at the interface layer might blacklist Vitalik.eth, right? So like that might be possible, but what they're not going to do is I'm never going to get Vitalik.eth back. Uh, so if I, now, of course, um, you know, if I want to, I can make Vitalik. The my holding of Vitalik.eth still be very secure, right? Um, so. In the crypto space, there is this concept that I've been a big proponent of for a long time called social recovery wallets, uh, where basically it's a special kind of wallet account, which is a smart contract. And the rules basically say that you define a fairly large group of people. Um, So in the case of the wallet that contains like all of uh, my money, for example, this is a public, this is public on chain information. It's a four of six. Um, And uh, basically, yeah, so there's some group of people and the majority of those people need to sign off um, in order to um, you know make some particular something happen um, so like you know it could move vitalik.eth over to that wallet um, you know it could uh, 
even move Vitalik.eth into a contract where kind of I could unilaterally do things with that name, but then if it ever gets stolen or if it ever gets lost, I could kind of call up that group of four of six and uh, force them to transfer it back. And so you know, crypto does uh, offer these kinds of things that could kind of get the risk of uh, things like loss or theft to be re uh, reduced to a very low number. Um, the technique is actually very similar to uh, what WeChat uses for account recovery. Like in, in WeChat, when you recover your account, you also have to like basically call up the two of your friends and get them to send a six-digit code to you. Um, it's uh, which is interesting, right? Like if even in those cases where a centralized resolution is obviously completely available, like sometimes these kinds of techniques also have to be used just for efficiency purposes, right? Yeah. So I think um, in the uh, trademark Justin Sun Steam case, one way to read that situation from a political economy perspective is where basically you have a local level of government, which is the Steam blockchain, and then you have a kind of central, more distant layer of government, which is the trademark ecosystem. And the yeah, higher, like the more central layer of government was just socially too far away from the situation and didn't understand the specific specifics of the situation and like local community morals uh, well enough to be able to give the correct outcome, right? Um, so that's uh, kind of more generally, I guess, an argument for trying to make some of these government functions more kind of local. And I don't necessarily mean spatially local because I think in the 21st century, um, you know, individual talents are kind of less important as a you know, locus of community than they were historically. I mean, like socially local. Um, and in, um, so the, I, I, I do think that like blockchains and, um, you know, DAOs and things uh, happening in the crypto space and kind of trying to handle most things themselves is a good example of uh, making that happen. Okay. So well, as a transition question to get us back to some topics of governance, one of the chief pitches of crypto is decentralization. Mm -hmm. um, but we keep seeing this trend of, of centralization anyway, and this comes in many forms, you know, whether it's services to just will stick a private database right in the middle between a blockchain and, and its users, or consolidation of mining power, concentrated coin ownership, um, or DAOs that are owned effectively by three people. How do you fight this tendency towards recentralization or, you know, uh, assuming you think it's a bad thing? Um, just do you have any thoughts on that, that kind of trend towards centralization versus the tension of the initial pitch of decentralization? Mm. I mean, I definitely think that it's a concern, uh, and I, you know, I definitely have been get in getting more and more open to this uh, viewpoint that if you want some particular like layer of an ecosystem to be decentralized, then that decentralization has to be uh, to some degree an intentional and uh, ongoing effort. Um, right. I, like that's the philosophy behind antitrust law, for example, to some extent, right? Like that, um, you know, you want to have some kind of like explicit government thing that pushes for competition to continue to exist because otherwise the, the competitors do end up kind of calling each other and uh, banding together. Um, I think uh, in the crypto space, obviously, there isn't a government enforcing antitrust law, but there are these other uh, kind of community uh, driven levers, right? So one of them is just uh, like, 
reputation and people's desire to be a good person and be seen as a good person. Um, and this happened in both Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Like I think in uh, Bitcoin, there was a situation back in 2013 when a single mining pool that was called a ghash.io got to 51% of the total Bitcoin network hash power, which basically meant that they were would be have been able to unilaterally rewrite the chain to be whatever they want. And everyone noticed this. And there was this large movement uh, to try to get people off of Ghash. And it actually worked, right? And the percentage went uh, kind of down pretty quickly. And I think after that, I forget the details. This was a long time ago. But I believe that they even made a public commitment to not let their market share go above 40% um, after that, which I thought was a yeah, you know, very yeah, kind of lovely and pro-social move of them, right? So there's those kinds of levers. Um, another lever is, of course, like protocol design and trying really hard to actually design the protocol to not have economies of scale and even to have diseconomies of scale to some extent. Um, so one interesting example of this in Ethereum, in the Ethereum proof of stake design, is that we have this concept of anti-correlation penalties. What an anti-correlation penalty means is basically that when you, as a proof of stake validator node, um, do something clearly bad, so like sign two conflicting blocks at the same time, for example, then the amounts that you get penalized is proportional to the number of other validators that do something wrong at almost the same time. Um, so you get penalized more if you fail at the same time as other people, um, and you get penalized actually very little, like only about 3% of the uh, amount if you get penalized at a time when no one else is getting penalized. Um, so the idea here is basically to discourage people from joining the largest pool, uh, to discourage people uh, from even putting their staking on the same cloud service as everyone else uh, to discourage people from sometimes even running the same software or you know relying on um, being in the same geographic zone as everyone else. So in some ways, it's like this intentional effect um, effort to create the exact opposite of the nobody got fired for buying IBM effect, right? You know, this is this kind of, you know, conformist effects that exists, you know, in a lot of real world contexts where if you make a decision that leads to something bad, but you are just following common wisdom, then you never actually get, get punished because, you know, what the guy was just following common wisdom. But, um, you know, if uh, you do something different from uh, other people and that leads to something bad, then uh, like all the blame goes on you. Um, and so, uh, the yeah no in the in the proof of stake case like it's intentionally trying to create the exact opposite right it's like no if you do something that's the same as everyone else and it leads to something bad that's when you lose all your money um, and uh, there are signs that it's effective like there are like we've talked to even staking pool providers uh, some of the yeah big ones and uh, the. Some of them have been decentralizing between different uh, providers um, and the different software implementations internally because they were afraid of like one of them failing, leading to a huge amount of money getting lost. Um, so that was actually interesting. You like even align uh, selfish incentives with the uh, decentralization goal. Um, so yeah, and I think. Uh, there's a lot that you can do with these uh, kind of protocol changes that try to like uh, deliberately get, you know, remove economies of scale where possible, add, add these uh, diseconomies of scale where possible. But then also, I think uh, there is some extent to which uh, there, there might be economies of scale that can't be removed. Um, and the only way that we really have to compensate for that is by appealing to this kind of community morals and uh, social governance layer sometimes. 
So I'll kick this next one over to you, Will, because that I think a good is a good bridge to questions about voting systems. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So recently, Vitalik, actually like three days ago, we talked to someone who's working on approval voting. Uh, they've had a lot of traction. They've, they've gotten you know a lot of success in implementing approval voting in South Dakota. They're working on Seattle, Washington now. They raised a lot of money from open philanthropy and it's been going really well. I, I, I'm curious, you're interested in um, you know quadratic voting, a lot of these uh, other interesting systems. Uh, can you contrast quadratic voting with approval voting? And is there in some sense like a, I guess a trade-off and Lars, you might have a better phrasing than I do for this, between like a system that's like more optimal, but is harder to explain and kind of illegible to people to one that's like easy to explain and somewhat easier to implement? Right. So I guess the general like theory of uh, why existing voting is broken like starts with um, the uh, arrows theorem. Um, all right, where you basically there's like this list of uh, prop of uh, fairly simple and like very intuitive properties that a voting system that's sane should obviously have, and it turns out that it's mathematically impossible to create one if there's more than two candidates, uh, and. Uh, so, you know, that, like, that's why we have issues like the whole strategic voting thing where, um, you know, if uh, every, there might be a lot of people that like one particular candidate, but if there is this kind of self-reinforcing impression that that candidate has no chance, then everyone votes for just the lesser of two evils out of the two that do have a chance. Um, I guess, uh, so approval voting is one way of uh, getting around Eros theorem, right? I, I, I do think Eros theorem is overrated by a lot of people. Like um, Eros theorem, basically, yeah, it's often gets cited as this kind of general theory why politics sucks and why it has to suck. Um, and like the reason why that's not true is because the Eros theorem is like specifically reliant on this concept of ordinal preferences, right? That like, like it assumes that the, the thing that you are inputting is, you know, is A better than B, is A better than C, is B better than C without being able to say, you know, by how much is A better than B or, you know, which ones do I just think are fine and which ones do I think are not fine? Um, yeah, I actually have my own candidate for kind of the mathematical theorem that is the general reason why politics sucks, um, which is, uh, I, I talk about this in one of my blog posts on coordination. It's basically the fact um, that in the individual choice model, so where games are like in a game theory where everyone's making decisions separately, you can have games that have equilibria, but in the co uh, cooperative uh, game theory setting, so where you assume that kind of subsets of players can actually talk to each other and have shared uh, like uh, collective strategies, there's actually a wide class of games where there isn't even an equilibrium, like it's basically dooms to be chaotic. Um, so I thought that it was... Uh, just a bit of a fascinating aside, right? But uh, approval voting does ch uh, change the uh, M issue or or solve er the Eros theorem problem. Um, and basically, because instead of saying, you know, who's better than who, you're just saying, you know, which candidates am I fine with? Which candidates uh, am I not fine with? Quadratic voting is interesting in that it's like range voting in that you get to kind of score like in a very fine grained way. Well, how much do you like each candidate? Right. But range voting has this problem that like, if you think some candidate is good at all, then, you know, if you know that they're going to do an average and let's say if the average is 55 and your actual opinion is 70, you vote 70, it might increase it to 55.01. But if you instead vote hundred, then it's going to, then you're going to increase the average to 55.03. Right. So it's just always everyone's incentive to vote either zero or hundred and it collapses down to approval voting. Um, but quadratic voting fixes that problem by making the, your votes like have a cost, right. And, and, and have a quadratic cost. So if you want to vote uh, with a score of one, that costs you one credit. If you want to vote with a 
score of two that costs four credits, if you want to vote with a score of three that has nine credits. And so the more extreme your vote gets, the more expensive in terms of kind of sacrificing your ability to vote on all the other issues, does it get to vote even like kind of one unit further, right? And it turns out that there is a bunch of really nice math why quadratic voting is optimal. Um, and it does basically perfectly compensate for this kind of zero and 100 bias that range voting has. Uh, so quadratic voting, basically, yeah, it's great because it allows you to express these like these uh, preferences that have varying levels of strength, uh, where some people might be weakly against an issue, some other people might be strongly um, in favor of uh, or against an issue. Um, and it does it in this kind of more inclusive way where it's part of the protocol. Because as opposed to like, say for example, like NIMBYism, right? Where you do have a small number of people that's like heavily against, um, you know, housing being built. But the way that kind of city hall meetings, meetings and the whole system is structured work is that it basically, yeah, you know, really selects for like a particular group of people that just have a lot of time on their hands to, like, to, to you know, go into these meetings and keep talking and shutting everyone down, right? Um, so whereas, um, you know, with uh, quadratic voting, it's like there is a way to express the fact that you feel something strongly or feel something weakly, but it's done in this kind of more, um, you know, equal way where just everyone gets some number of credits and you can just go and vote. Um, yeah. So speaking more on, you know, NIMBYism and mm. your kind of thoughts on governance, you've written this article talking about this dynamic between vetocracy and bulldozer mentality. Um, I was wondering if you could briefly summarize, you know, just in a couple sentences, what that means for our audience and how that drives your thinking and ties into the things we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So vetocracy versus bulldozer was uh, kind of my attempt to like show a different uh, con conceptualization of uh, like political divides that we have, right? So I think people are used to left versus right and um, authoritarian versus libertarian, but there's a lot of people and like a lot of uh, you know movements and viewpoints that really cut across both in a way that feels inconsistent, but actually is very consistent. Um, and so the um, authoritarian, or sorry, the vetocracy versus bulldozer kind of access basically says on the vetocracy side, you have systems that are biased toward inaction um, and toward doing nothing um, unless like almost, like almost everyone agrees on a move in a particular direction and giving lots of different participants veto power. Whereas uh, bulldozerism is basically, you know, systems where you do give like particular single individuals or potentially large groups, just the uh, ability to kind of move things. And it's, uh, you know, the uh, don't uh, ask for permission, beg forgiveness uh, so, uh, sort of ethos. Um, so one of the like criticisms of uh, contemporary America that you see recently, um, I think uh, it was hard for people to articulate, especially if you think in the left versus right and libertarian versus authoritarian sense, because the criticism has aspects to it that appear on all sides of the spectrum, right? And the criticism basically does say that, you know, hey, look, America is a vitocracy, right? So some examples of this are that like you get people who, you know, for example, um, criticize, um, you know, government for being ineffective and not being able to agree on new laws or even be able to do local things. Like there was this fairly famous big article, I think one or two years back, just talking about like why Penn Station is terrible and how no one has managed to upgrade it for a really long time. 
Um, at the same time, um, you know, you have like the criticism that like, oh, you know, private property gets kind of really respected and it's really hard to do even very needed things if they uh, go against private property in some senses. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, you get this criticism of uh, NIMBYism and which is weird, right? Because um, if your viewpoint is like, oh, I'm like the problem with America is that it doesn't value the need to do collective good things because it respects individual freedom too much. But like California zoning codes are the exact opposite of respecting individual freedom, right? So like that's kind of the totally, you know, 45 degrees off wrong access by which to even make that case, right? So if instead you say, well, you know, the problem actually is that America is uh, vetocratic um, and that this is a big problem, then like that actually makes sense, right? And I think there is a good kind of way to shape the historical story for why this happens, right? Because like there is a left vetocracy, there is right vetocracy. And I think you can view a lot of it as being a, a reaction to authoritarian high modernism in the early 20th century, right? So both Hitler type stuff, but also Robert Moses um, and um, you know, some of that kind of um, urban planning stuff that just did a lot of uh, bulldozing that ended up really hurting people. And so, you know, there's this viewpoint that like, okay, the, like, you know, if you let great men just like go around and have power like that, then, you know, they're going to do terrible things. And so, you know, you can have the left wing response to that, which is uh, do dominated by things by saying, you know, oh, you know, we need community input um, and uh, we need to make systems that let uh, make sure that something like that can't happen without community input. And then there is the more right leaning uh, libertarian response that says, well, see, this is why uh, personal property really needs to be protected. Um, but, you know, really, they're in some ways part of the same trend um, and in some ways the kinds of problems that too much of that mentality causes are also very similar problems, um, right? Like, uh, you know, if you have a system where you have total private property and there just is no eminent domain, then, uh, you know, how are you ever going to build um, something like a high-speed rail, right? Like, uh, at some point, once you start buying up the houses, everyone else that's kind of in the middle of the path, they're going to realize that this is going on and that their consent is like basically required for this multi-billion dollar project to finish. And so they're going to bid things up by a factor of five. Um, and uh, just, you know, coordination between like kind of different government bodies is often a problem. And um, all of these, uh, you know, different reasons why stuff is uh, expensive in, in the U.S. Um, so if you make that criticism on the like vetocracy versus bulldo bulldozer um, axis and you basically say, well, oh, the the problem is that, you know, maybe America needs to be willing to be a little more bulldozery, then like the argument just feels kind of more coherent, right? So that's in the US context. Um, in the crypto context, I think uh, one of the things I mentioned in the article is that I think crypto has this interesting duality to it in that crypto often is uh, accomplishing some pretty bulldozery ends, right? It's basically saying, you know, look at these chlorotic financial systems that are not updating to the modern age. It's still incredibly hard to send money internationally. So we're just not going to bother interfacing with this existing system. We're just going to like go ahead and build our own. Um, and, uh, you know, here we have a currency. You can now transfer it from uh, Kyrgyzstan to Guatemala as quickly as you can transfer an email. And, um, you know, you can go use it and it's great. And, you know, you know good luck trying to stop us. Uh, but at the same time, the mechanisms that cryptocurrency uses to protect itself internally are very uh, vetocratic, right? And this is especially 
true in the Bitcoin space uh, because, I mean, in the Bitcoin space, there's this very conservative developer ethos. And there basically is a group of like a couple of dozen people where any single one of them can basically stonewall a particular proposal to the point where it either just can't happen or it takes a, a, a really long time to happen, right? And there's this really strong bias that like Bitcoin is not a majority vote system. It's not a democracy. And, you know, you actually do need consensus. And uh, consensus basically means, um, you know, no significant disagreement that kind of the Bitcoin Arati uh, elite des uh, decide is uh, technically reasonable. Um, so... Ethereum, I think, also has this uh, to some extent. Like, it is weaker. Um, I think because in part because Ethereum also has this like constitution um, around uh, like moving to proof of stake and moving to sharding. But you know, there are also v uh, pretty strong vitocracy norms, right? Especially around you know things like like immutability and uh, just not going around and changing the state to you know, like rescue accounts that got hacked, for example. Yeah. So that kind of brings up like the whole first mover, second mover advantage. You know, there's this common criticism of blockchain as the environmental issue. A lot of modern um, L1s and L2s that are coming out are now kind of proof of stake is kind of table stakes for environmental reasons and also just for, you know, transaction time and cost reasons. Um, Bitcoin was the first. And so they had the advantage. They got all this mind share. But then they're also kind of locked into this vitocracy, as you say, like, I don't see Bitcoin changing like in major ways anytime soon. Um, Ethereum had your second mover advantages because you could see what happened with Bitcoin. But um, I guess the question I'm kind of asking is if you could talk about first mover and second mover advantages and disadvantages and like if crypto, if you had all the knowledge you had now and crypto revolution hadn't started yet and you were now going to found Ethereum, like what would you do different basically with knowledge of these first and second mover advantages and disadvantages? Mm. I do think that there were a lot of these uh, kind of specific technical um, things that I would love to like transmit to myself back in 2014. So things like, for example, um, you know, don't bother trying to make this really complicated and perfect proof of stake from the beginning. Instead, start off with a simpler proof of stake and upgrade it over time. Um, things um, like uh, a lot of particular places in the protocol where the protocol could have been designed to be a lot simpler. Uh, so there's a lot of these different uh, lessons that I think we've learned from uh, Ethereum's progress so far. And a lot of those things are fixable, but just because Ethereum is a living system, it takes much longer to fix them. And Ethereum itself did end up learning uh, quite a bit from Bitcoin, right? So like, for example, one of the political problems that Bitcoin has, I think, is because there is this one central Bitcoin client, um, the, uh, the Bitcoin Core uh, software implementation, there, that basically creates this elite of core developers where those are the ones that have veto power over a change, um, right? And it's... Uh, very hard uh, to basically yeah, for an outsider to come in and start participating in Bitcoin governance on their own terms, kind of without um, you know respecting the uh, existing establishment and um, and its values. And so that easily leads to being kind of sclerotic in a lot of ways. Um, so the way what Ethereum did is it basically said we're not going to have one client. We're going to have uh, a bunch of clients, um, and anyone will start their own client. 
the Ethereum Foundation is going to work on a client, but we're going to work on a uh, client that's written in Python, which is a very slow programming language. So it's basically just like an implementation that's set up to fail um, and in a market. Um, and it's just there to kind of show people how it's done um, and uh, just experiment with the ideas, right? Uh, so that's uh, something that... Um, you know, it's a choice that we made. Um, actually, there were, we had we made two iterations of the choice. I mean, interestingly enough, so when Ethereum first launched, there was um, you know the Go client, the C plus plus clients, um, and uh, at, but what happened was that uh, we ended up launching like basically being forced to launch more quickly. Uh, um, fairly quickly because, uh, well, actually it was, it ended up taking much longer than anyone expected. Uh, it ended up taking about like 20 months and people were just so tired of Ethereum not launching that they're like, Hey, you know, this thing has to come out already. And so because of that, only one client, uh, Geth was really ready at launch time. And so the other clients were not ready. And so like none of the other clients ever really had a chance. Um, so then after that, there was the Parity client, which was started by an outside team, and that succeeded for a while. But then the Parity team went off to do Polkadot, and so they stopped working on that client. Um, and now, actually, we have like Nethermind, Aragon, Basu. We have a couple of alternatives, and it's finally becoming healthier, but that took a long time. But Ethereum's, during our switch to proof of stake, we actually yeah, learned from our own like round one failure, and we... Yeah, that's when we decided on this approach that the foundation is only going to do the Python client and the foundation will kind of actively subsidize any uh, kind of competent seeming group that's uh, trying to make a, a, a different client. And so now we actually do have this like, diverse ecosystem of these uh, four or five uh, pretty high quality um, implementations of Ethereum's proof of stake side. Um, so that's an example. So there was an example of, I guess, Ethereum learning from Bitcoin and then Ethereum learning from itself. Um, and then, I mean, there is, of course, these newer projects that claim to be learning from Ethereum um, and that try to kind of avoid what they see as being some of Ethereum's issues, which is interesting to see. Um, I think uh, it's interesting because sometimes they do identify things that, like, if Ethereum easily could, we would love to adopt. There are sometimes they identify things that like actually don't really matter that much. Um, so, and then sometimes they identify things that I just like disagree with, right? So a lot of those chains tends to be much more comfortable with higher levels of centralization, for example, right? And that's something that I think both I and the Ethereum community are not comfortable with. Um, so that's a case of just them deciding to, you know, make a kind of fundamentally incompatible different product. And so we have, uh, you know, two ecosystems and uh, everyone just goes to whichever one appeals more to them personally. So I wanted to tie this back together, crypto and Georgism together. I wanted to ask a quick question to kind of tie those two together was um, there's been this whole trend of virtual real estate on chain. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that phenomenon. Um, I, I have my own thoughts and I've written extensively about it, but I, I think it's kind of this interesting um, confluence of, of land economics and um, crypto. Yeah, I think it's a very fascinating topic. Uh, I think it's part of this like broader topic in crypto that I've been trying to push for, which is like, if you have a crypto project that can um, create this uh, like limited uh, supply uh, 
uh, asset that people end up wanting and being willing to pay huge amounts of money for, then I think we should create systems that try to kind of channel that revenue um, and into funding like public goods in the ecosystem that it would otherwise get underfunded, right? Like I think the way that uh, uh, Glenn Weil uh, uh, says it is uh, tax the congestible subsidize the increasing returns, right? So it basically it's like, tax the thing where if more people participate, um, it be, the, the experience becomes worse for each person um, and use that revenue to subsidize the thing where if more people participate, it becomes better for each person. Um, and so you kind of like fix one of the big uh, economic imbalances there, right? So in terms of like things that are congestible in crypto lands, like obviously there is the uh, just the, the token supply, right? Um, so there's a, a fixed number of tokens. And if you issue an unlimited number of tokens, the whole thing breaks. And uh, that the ability to issue that limited number of tokens becomes this sort of congestible resource that you can get revenue from uh, allocating. Another one is block space, right? If block space was infinite and everyone could send as many transactions on Ethereum as they wanted, it would be impossible to run a node. And so there's a fixed amount of space. And so Ethereum automatically auctions that space. Um, and uh, since about a year now, the uh, revenues uh, from the, those auctions get burned, um, right? This was uh, EIP-1559. Um, the yeah, main goal of EIP-1559 was originally actually to get rid of uh, first price auction um, inefficiencies. It was this kind of technical kind of economic thing that basically said, hey, you know, look at what game theory says about what how auctions work today and like, let's make a better one. But it had the side effects that it also like, actually burns those coins. Um, but then also there are other kind of congestion um, effects in uh, blockchains. Land is um, an excellent one. Um, ENS names are also an excellent one, right? Like there's only a limited number of uh, three-letter and four-letter ENS names. Uh, there's uh, things um, like the right to set in, include transactions in a block um, in a block first. Um, this is uh, the thing that uh, the cool kids in crypto call um, MEV extraction. Like basically, there's a lot of revenue that you can gain from being able to choose just the first transaction. Um, like you know, you can do arbitrage of on-chain things and so forth. There's a uh, limited issue NFTs, um, obviously, right? So there's this long list of uh, things that uh, are in the crypto space that that have like some kind of congestion effect or benefit from being a limited supply in some way. Um, and uh, I think uh, you know the idea of actually uh, capturing that revenue and then putting that revenue toward um, you know funding things that would otherwise be incredibly hard to fund um, is. Uh, so like one of those things that I think uh, you know the crypto space already um, is doing to some extent, but potentially could do really well. And it's also one of those places where I'm hopeful that um, you know there might be some innovations there that then get exported to other contexts. That's great. Well, Vitalik, one more quick question. Uh, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You've got the attention of the world. What problems do you want to help solve through the rest of your life? And how do you prioritize those problems? Mm, it's a... Definitely a good one. Um, I think uh, like around now is um, an interesting time for myself personally because it's getting to the point where Ethereum research is um, ossifying, um, right? Um, so it's uh, the the amount of stuff that's changing in the Ethereum roadmap is becoming lower and lower. The uh, Ethereum Foundation's level of quality has just shot up massively over the last three or four years, uh, to the point where it's gone from me being like basically indispensable to any kind of research happening to the point where there are these really amazing and smart uh, teams and uh, individuals that are capable of uh, you know making these very high quality proposals themselves. Um, so um, at, 
And at the same time, it's also getting to the point where like we understand what blockchains are like and we understand what blockchains will be like. And so a lot of the stuff that hasn't been done yet is going to happen at the higher levels of the ecosystem. And so lately I have been uh, getting more interested in the higher level questions um, and, uh, you know, and the, yeah, the, these questions of like, what are some good Ethereum applications that don't exist yet? Um, how to make DAOs work better, how to make decentralized identity work better. Um, and, um, you know, these kinds of things all start end up kind of quickly yeah, hitting into these uh, questions of uh, kind of, you know, political economy and, um, you know, psychology and the, how people interact with each other um, even more than blockchains themselves do. Um, so, you know, it feels like I'm going to be yeah, whacking my head against that. Um, and, uh, you know, both in the Ethereum ecosystem and also in uh, kind of increasingly in kind of some of these efforts outside. And I think increasingly over time, uh, those uh, spheres are going to like, even start merging uh, for quite a while. That's excellent. Well, Vitalik, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you too. This is a great one. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.